Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Consequence of Sound film editor Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and you're joining us for the final of our three episodes looking at the body of work of one Wes Anderson. And before we get started, I'm going to let my two guest panelists for this week introduce themselves. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Snydell. I am a uh, chair on the podcast The Film Stage Show, which actually has had a few Consequence of Sound veterans like uh, Allison Shoemaker and uh, Clint Worthington. Uh, on our podcast, and I'm also a freelancer. Nice, nice. Well, I'm Michael Rothman. I'm uh, Editor-in-Chief of Consequence of Sound and uh, also on a bunch of different podcasts on the Consequence Podcast Network, uh, especially this week. It's been, a, it's been a whirlwind week, and I am just very happy to be ending it with one of my favorite directors, uh, Wes Anderson. And it just so happens that the two of the movies that we're going to be talking about happen to be my favorite of his. So, you know, very cool. Well, I'm glad to have you both here. Thank you for joining me on this oddly autumnal April evening. Um, Sometimes it snows in April. I know. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) And we'll continue before it's through. But before we get started, I just want to remind everyone listening at home or wherever you are to please rate the show on Podchaser, on iTunes. You have no idea how valuable these things are to us. So please, if you're enjoying the show... Share it on, tell a friend, tell a parent. I, we try not to cuss too much. And if you're really enjoying it, come along to the Facebook page for the podcast, Filmography, an American filmmaking podcast, because we're going to be soliciting some input from you, the listener, about where you'd like to see us go with the series in future installments. But that is the future. This is the now. And now we'll be talking about... I know, that was a really NPR transition. That was great. I was super proud of myself. I I love it. Um, We're going to be talking about Wes Anderson, the dramatist, this week. We've talked about him as a comedian and as a dreamer, but we're going to talk about one of the crucial elements of any Anderson film, the humane, dramatic element. And the question I want to open by posing to you is, how does Anderson negotiate these shifts into sometimes these halted but really raw emotions? You know, I I, I think that I, I'm glad to be on this particular segment of uh, talking about Wes Anderson because I think that the emotion is something that often um, often gets uh, not ignored but a little bit overshadowed in, in comparison to a lot of like pot shots about quirkiness or it, you know a uh, a sense of intricacy and meticulousness. So I, I think that. Um, Especially rewatching some of a couple uh, recent films for this episode, it was interesting to note few directors these days have the ability to so quickly change for something comedic 
to something that becomes, again, I, I really like the word brutal, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's actually a good keyword, to be honest with you. Like, um, and now it's kind of similar, similar feelings I have. I, I think like the way that he does the gut punch with the drama is, and it's usually left field. And a lot of the times it's, it's very violent. Uh, is what actually I feel is what grounds his movies because not only is the drama, it, it never, the drama never feels over the top. Whereas where everything else seems larger than life, the drama actually feels like something that you can relate to. Uh, and especially with these three films that we're going to be talking about today and which, you know, you know, the third one that we're really going to be talking about is it's, it's crazy that you can relate to a lot of these things because it does feel like you're watching like a painting come to life. And yet these kind of like, there's an intimacy to the drama that it just feels so like neighborhoodly in a weird way. Like, like you've, you've, you've know these feelings because you've, there's just like a very lived in experience to the drama. And, um, and I think that's what kind of separates Anderson from a lot of the, the kind of quirky indies that come out that have tried to model actually off of his own work. Um, and I think he's been doing this since the get-go. I think you could even go back to like Bottle Rock, and there are some glimpses of this in there also. Um, but. I would absolutely agree. And I think one of the running motifs in our conversations the last two weeks has been the ways in which this drama sort of phases in and out to varying levels of severity depending on the film. Mm-hmm. But this week, um, in the interest of letting everyone keep up, we're going to be talking 2001's The Royal Tenenbaums. 2007's The Darjeeling Limited and 2014's The Grand Budapest Hotel. And I actually like this distribution because unlike the past weeks, you have a pretty solid lapse of time between different phases of Anderson's career represented here. And I would argue each of them has come to be considered a pretty seismic shift in his style. And each time it's been, as a commonality, him exploring emotional territory that had been present in his work and, to your point, had been present as early as Bottle Rocket, his debut. But here in these particular films, you get a sense that maybe things aren't going to be fine. You get this genuine ominousness. And there are jokes in all of them, and that's a crucial point to maintain here during this discussion. These are still very funny films at times. Royal Tenenbaums in particular is some of the best arch comedy readings of lines I've ever heard. But it's also a film with one of the grisliest on-screen suicide attempts in film history. So there's always this really interesting tension between Anderson playing with these ideas of a kinder, more benevolent world that he sees over full of arch bitter people and films where maybe that world is threatening to swallow them whole. Mm -hmm. And I think as far as the world swallowing you whole, that's as good a way as any into the Royal Tenenbaums, which is by far one of his most nakedly emotional films. And as we talked about last week, Anderson's always a little cagey when it comes to discussing like the personal attachment to a lot of the emotions in his work. But these themes of divorce and broken family absolutely hover over everything. And I think Tenenbaums is arguably his most direct engagement with those ideas. Mm-hmm. You could tell like when he goes from Rushmore to Tenenbaums, just how much more willing he is to get personal. I mean, this this definitely feels like a more personal story uh, than than Rushmore in a sense of where he takes each one of his characters, and also just how wide open or how much he cracks open the drama to all the characters. I mean, there's there's bits and pieces in Rushmore where you get some pathos, even with some of the bullies in Rush or in the bully in Rushmore, or 
Um, and, and, and obviously there's the, the, the two between Herman and, and Max, but with, with, with Royal Tenenbaums, you get the sense that everyone's going through something and, and like, that's, and it's right from the get go even. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, you know, funny and, and very, um, twee in the sense. And you get the, the whole Hey Jude, uh, instrumental, but right from the get go, you kind of get this like tone that like they're, yeah, they they got some hurdles to go over at this to point. To put it one way, everyone is in their Herman Bloom phase yeah. simultaneously. <laughs> everyone is struggling with the fact that maybe the world is leaving them behind in their own way. Yeah, yeah. I think as much, I'd, I'd like to mention as well that I think compared to Rushmore, this is a film that bleeds as mm-hmm. well. And, and it not only begins, you know, this... Um, this uh you know almost fire hose style in terms of how much he's throwing at the screen but also this idea messiness and control can exist you know uh, side by side yeah and and doesn't have to feel constructed and mm-hmm. can feel more like i i think especially in terms of royal ten of moms i have to say uh after rewatching it last night the the feeling i got was that uh in, in the case of many scenes, it, it feels more freeform than mm-hmm. I remembered. That they're almost trying to, uh, you know, take a, a maze to these emotional uh, revelations, yeah. even if they're in the Anderson vernacular. Yeah, it's very pinball. Like you know, you get one character that bounces on another one, and you find out something from that character because of that interaction. I mean. Margot is one of the main central figureheads in this. You could almost say that in, in hindsight, like Margot is one of the most key characters because she brings out so much in so many of the characters. I mean, she, she brings out like depth to Royal. She brings out depth to, you know, to Richie, to, to Eli, to, um, I mean, there's just so many, I mean, it's just interesting how he, he kind of, but then, then you could say the same thing about someone like, I mean, even Pagoda, like it's, it's crazy. I mean, just the way that the chaos of how these characters interact, it, it, it's very much like a play, like, which is funny, you know, that, you know, obviously with Margot and her plays and everything, but it is very much like a play where you have to rely on the characters to, to bring out that narrative as opposed to just all the visuals either. I mean, which not to say that there aren't any visual storytelling here, but I really think he does lean on the actual ensemble to actually bring out the narrative. Well, and I think there's something to be said for Royal Tenenbaums being the first time where it really comes across that even in a room full of people, every single one of them is on their own island, which is kind of a commonality you're going to see in all three of the films we're talking about tonight, where with Tenenbaums, which... I'm always surprised I'm as moved by the film as I is I, as I am because it falls into one of my least favorite set subcategories of film, which is to say indie movies set in New York about arch rich people. Yeah, but it also kind of cuts to the heart of a lot of those tropes because it gets at the selfishness and the narcissism and the anger, just the piles and piles of roiling anger in all of them. And you're also seeing it at a very interesting point of view. You're seeing the downturn of a kind of aristocratic family, which you don't always see. You know, like if they do actually tell this story, the downturn happens to be emotionally as opposed to literally almost at every level. I mean, you get this sense in this movie that they're not financially sound, you know, like that, like Royals totally screwed this family over. What, 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 you know, this used to be some sort of, prestigious family and it's basically really leaning on Ethelin. Um, and at this point who also seems to be going through the motions and 
I'm from, I'm actually, you know, so I'm from South Florida, which has a lot of like very big dividing lines in terms of class and structure and all. And I, you know, I grew up in, um, in like some nice neighborhoods and stuff, but I was always, I'd, I'd always seen like the one percenters and then the middle class. And there's, it's so interesting when you see an older family, struggling with that with losing that sort of grip on the one percenters and coming back down to like almost like a middle class because certain you know nuances start showing and become a little bit more um pronounced and they you start realizing like oh well you know they're they they're struggling being human beings in a way and it almost seems like the safety net of what this of what once was as it's fading uh shows them in this like chaotic state and seeing how they adapt is like is such an interesting point of view. And like, I saw so many families go through this. And like watching the Royal Attendant Bombs, it feels so emblematic of that sort of transition of just it's not it's not exactly a fall from grace because they're not really falling from any sort of grace. It's they're still very well to do. They don't have to worry about being on the streets or anything. But it's the idea of just the spotlight's not exactly on them anymore. And dealing with that sort of marginalization is. I think brings out such an interesting character study, which is why you get so many like fringe society folks here. I mean, like Eli Cash, like for example. Like, I mean, like the the ways that the historical nature of some of the, these characters of like what they're doing and what they're studying and how they they're not really contributing anything, but they're still so high, they're still in this highbrow society. Is just I don't know. I, I think it's a very interesting um, sort of uh, subset of like like high society that he's actually focusing on here. Well, and it's funny because it almost forms kind of a trilogy with Rushmore and life aquatic Mm -hmm. exploring that whole idea of, so with life aquatic in last week's discussion, we were talking about a lot of how it conveys failed dreams as a concept and just that reality that even if you are greatly successful, you are reaching a certain age, whether it's, your late 20s, like the Tenenbaum children, or like the age where you're confronting your mortality, like Royal. And it's about confronting that moment when you realize you're not going to do all the things you set out to do when you were a kid and having pipe dreams. Yeah. And kind of the deep existential terror that comes from that realization, which everyone struggles with in their own way. Well, it's, it seems like everyone has the floor like ripped right from their feet, you know, especially like even Chaz. You know, you get someone like Chaz who, who thought he was going to have, the, you know, this very preordained family of just having like, I have the two kids I'm going to raise them perfectly. And then all of a sudden his wife's gone and he's like, Oh shit. And now he's scrambling, which is, he's just overdoing it at that point. And then you have, I mean, and then even like Royal who seems to be free, his freewheeling isn't working anymore. And he just keeps running himself into a corner. Um, and it's just like everyone that's, that's used to their own vices. They're not working anymore. And it's like, what do you do when you can't lean on that anymore? I mean, it seems like, yeah, I mean, it's and that's and I think that's what's so interesting about this movie. Um, and, and then and, and seeing what just the, the the trajectories for all these characters are so unpredictable because of that because you just don't know how they are going to adapt and react at that point. I mean, even though, even though so many of them are so stoic and calm and you know present, so I, I think the other part that's really interesting to me about the the view of class and things like that is Anderson's decision to make all the characters so busy doing yeah. nothing. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> like, 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 you know, you see, like I think specifically of Chaz and he's, you know, running that company from his, you know, bedroom in yeah. the Tenenbaum's house or something. But you never have a clue what they're actually no. doing. 
Um, I, and you know, I, I think that like threads throughout, like uh, y- you know, whether you think about Margot, who has like made a, you know, she's made a living of like staying in the bathtub. Like, mm-hmm. I, like there's something so um, devoted uh, about how they're going through these routines. Yeah. But like, Anderson is also you know, clear to make it about a class thing as well, but also to like, (laughs) not so subtly saying that, you know, when you look at someone like Royal, when Royal doesn't have money, he sure seems to be happier. (laughs) Yeah. That's actually a good point. Like as as chaotic and and as crazy as his life is, Royal doesn't actually come off as unhappy per se. I mean, he's certainly disgruntled in a weird but way. But he's unhappy in that way that rich people are unhappy where there's like a ceiling for how truly unhappy they're ever going to be because they're still rich. Yeah, like, exactly. You, you, and I'm not sitting here saying that there aren't serious problems you develop when you're absurdly affluent. I'm just saying like they are not real problems either <laughs> in a broader sense. Yeah. yeah. Filmography brought to you by the proletariat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I do think there's something interesting to be said, too, about the fact that failure seems to be the only thing that's healing for them. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see that a lot as a common thread in these films where the fact that nobody really gets what they're after at the end of the film seems that's where that moment of catharsis at the funeral comes from is they're going to move on by kind of having this realization as a collective unit for once that none of them is really going to have the thing they're after. So they have to learn to be okay with what they have. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's tragic, but it's also not, you know, it's very optimistic in the end because, you know, the fact that they're all together, you, I mean, I don't, I guess, I guess, I guess it's a question. Do you think they all stay together or do you think this is just a momentous occasion? I think it's a momentous occasion. It's the kind of thing where you never know which way it's going to land, but then like the sobriety of the moment wears off and they go back to realizing <laughs> that they do not like being in a room with one another yeah. generally. Which I is can't, I can't help but think of the Darjeeling limited scene where they say um I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something along the lines of, you know, you know, if we weren't brothers, mm-hmm. do you think we'd be friends yeah, in real I, life? Which I honestly I think that could be like a thesis for the majority of like Anderson's movies, at least those that deal with family, um, you know, to some variation, you know, like you could even say if we weren't coworkers, would we be on the crew for Life Aquatic? <laughs> or like, or I mean, if we weren't, you know, crew members, would we actually ever want to interact with each other? I mean, I think that's kind of like his whole conceit for his characters or his ensembles is this: you're bound by something that's much that's separate. That from actual real human bond, but at some point in the movie, you're going to find it, at, at least some sort of semblance of it. Well, know? and it almost becomes deeper in this way because it's something that lingers against all logic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really hit on last week in discussing Life Aquatic, the whole scene on the beach where Steve refers to his crew as a pack of strays. Mm-hmm. And I think Royal Tenenbaums hits very much on that same sensation, but it comes off a lot more oddly and more painful mm-hmm. because this is a family. Yeah. In theory, even for all of their money and neuroses, this is supposed to be your support system. And they're not and they're not really ever going to be. No. And actually, if we're talking support systems in a family unit falling apart as they go, that's as good a way as any into Darjeeling Limited. It's true. Which, in revisiting, I will admit that, I mean, I've had the common refrain for a while, which is probably lazy, that it's one of my least favorite Andersons. But in revisiting it... It presents drama in a way he never really has before or since. It's a much more singular film than I remember it yeah. being. 
And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it has maybe the least exposition of any of his movies, I would argue. I Mm -hmm. mean, other than Isle of Dogs, which is kind of sparse by design, this is a movie where they get on the train, they get off the train, they go see their mother, and then they get back on the train. Narratively, this is about as bare bones as Anderson has ever worked. And he doesn't actually spoon feed it to you either. You know, you don't actually, I mean, the revelation itself of what actually is happening and what's binding them together. And in this particular instance and what has actually fractured the family and what has caused all this grief isn't even introduced until 75% away into the film. And even then you don't even actually see it. It's this weird anecdote that's involving a car. I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, I think out of all of his films, obviously this is the most European in, in the sense. Like, I mean, I definitely think of, um, a lot of like uh, Italian cinema when I'm watching this, a lot of like also even French cinema at this point. But I, I what's interesting about Darjeeling for me is that out of all his films, uh, and, and this includes Bottle Rocket, um, I think this is his most realistic movie. I think that like despite how surreal it is just because of they're strangers in a strange land, uh, you know, that whole that whole motif just in the, the idea of this, the train itself and how it gets lost is very magical and like kind of foreign in a way. I do think that this is like hands down the most like realistic drama that he's ever actually put out there, um, because I think like all the conflicts that's actually being shown. There's no, there's no, there's, there's, there's not a lot of whimsy to this movie, you know, and a lot of, even like Royal Tenenbaums, you can kind of tie some sort of whimsical notions to it. And especially with Grand Budapest. And I think that, I think with this one, there's, it's so stark and, and, and almost like dark in a weird way, because where every character is, is like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just very, there's a, there's a tone to this movie that's so set. Like you were saying, it is very singular and maybe it has to do with the fact that like, cause he, I think he wrote it with Roman Coppola. Right. So like, it's a very, I don't know. It just feels very separate from, from his work. I agree. Absolutely. And there's something I've always found interesting in his work and you especially see it when he lets the more dramatic end of it pop there. A lot of the pain in Anderson movies is peripheral In Rushmore, you never know Max's mother. She's been gone for years before the film ever picks up. Mm -hmm. The Tenenbaums, so much of what's happened to them is said only in passing via narration or via a one-liner here and there. And that's how you work a lot of those things out. This is one of the only times where I think a lot of it is really laid front and center. Yeah. Because even though you do only get that one moment of outright explanation as to where all this dysfunction has come from, from Owen Wilson's battered face to kind of the tone of one exhaustion that hangs over the film at large, you it kind of foregrounds that pain in a way that a lot of the films make subtler otherwise. It's also when you think about the context of this movie um, when it was when it came when it came out, um, it's it's actually really dark. Because uh, this is actually this actually came out around the same time Owen that Wilson. Owen Wilson had his suicide attempt, which mm-hmm. I still think haunts this movie in a sense. I mean you can't I for one remember when this premiered and I was actually covering this for the Tapalia at the time, Dom. Um, and I, I just remember this was, it came out the fall of 2007 and it was right around the same time that, you know, it was fresh in your mind of what was going on with what happened with Owen. And that scene, when he takes off the bandages, I remember audible gasps in the, the theater. And I didn't think it was tied specifically to just the sight because the sight is terrifying also. But I think it was also just because everyone in their mind like knew what had happened with Owen. And, and then he was like such yeah. a, he was an actor that you never thought in a million years that would happen with. And for that to happen to inform this movie, this particular movie, which 
ostensibly is the darkest of is of of Anderson's films. It just adds another weight, and I think that you know, obviously, I think it's that's been forgotten over the the past. Mm-hmm. It's been ten years now since this has come out, but. I, I still I still remember that when I watch this movie and it's still something that it's almost like the Heath Ledger death with like Dark Knight like it's sure. o- for me that's always just going to be that's going this movie is always going to be ensconced in that and especially just the, the 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 idea of healing for this film and how like it almost feels like this like even though it was filmed before the mm-hmm. incidents happened it felt it feels like a like a post incident therapeutic like f- you know experience for Wilson in a weird way I don't know maybe that's just seeing way too into that but. I don't know. I just, I feel like for me, I can't separate that, that context from this movie. Um, and I, and especially just given the, the, the style of drama, uh, in this film, um, and the idea that he is grieving. I mean, he's physically and mentally grieving in this movie. And, you know, at the end of the film, you really do realize that like, he's probably the more tortured of the three of them. And even though he's the most outgoing and bouncy and all this other stuff. So I, I don't know. That's Sorry for digressing on that, but I, I do think that's something that you have to address when you're talking about Darjeeling Limited, especially with like just given the you know. I think it's extra unusual too when you consider. Uh, I, I guess I should go on the record and say, I I saw Darjeeling for the first time this morning, mm. um, and it's probably my least favorite uh, Wes Anderson film, but. That said, I I don't want to just kick it while it's down. I I, I think that there's... What I wanted to say, though, is I think it's extra unusual to point out that real-life context of Owen Wilson when you consider that uh, his his character in Darjeeling Limited is uh, the most explicitly screwball. Yeah. Like, when when it comes to many of his line deliveries, Mm -hmm. and especially that kind of winding dialogue, it's very reminiscent of... You know, like uh, you know, Howard Hawks or Preston Sturgis. Yep. Like, yeah. and, and and I think honestly that uh, that clash is something I found really difficult because mm-hmm. um, I, I think Owen Wilson is such an abrasive presence in this, and combined with him like uh, forcing them on a, a spiritual journey, I, I think I find it like I, I'm now questioning how much Wes Anderson. Uh, did that intentionally? Yeah, of making his character so uh, polar opposite of that well uh, situation. I, th- I think there's something very telling in the way that that reveal is made to the point of the scene where his unbandaged face is displayed. It's this very solemn, sober moment mm-hmm. where it's delivered in near silence. There's sort of this quiet, gentle moment of reflection about it that, for better or worse. And I want to get to whether it's deliberate or not in a minute, but a lot of the film doesn't quite get at that same sense of solemnity. And I think the way he lets that moment in particular breathe is very interesting. Now, I feel like it would be irresponsible to talk about Darjeeling Limited and not at least broach the elephant in the room, which is... Is this a sharp commentary on dipshit Americans abroad (laughs) trying to force an emotional experience in a place that they have no business forcing an emotional experience in? Or is it doing a little bit of cultural tourism? (laughs) I think both. Uh, You know, I think there's this uh, interview that he does in the the book with um, Matthew the Zoller Zeitz. Um, He talks about how he's really big or Wes talks about how he's really big on like the first experiences on traveling Mm -hmm. and how those, those first experiences are so interesting and how they inform just how you're going to identify with this place for the rest of your life. And the people that you meet 
I think he talks about how he wants to try to forge friendships so that there's reason for him to re- to return to a lot of these places. But they, you know, they also talk about how like you know they go to one of the most spiritual places on earth in the film, and they just end up going shopping and buying <laughs> you know like a, an adapter or something like that. And it's just like it is. I do think there is that sort of naivete like of just. The, this, the, the slovenly ways of Americans that are coming in there. But I do think there's like some sort of almost like Larry David-esque like humor in the sense that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a building like it's okay. I'm going to move on. Like, uh, but then at the, but the, but he, he undercuts that with where he does, they do end up finding some sort of, you know, spirituality to it. But I do think there's, there's some sort of humor to that, the, yeah, that, that sort of like Western thinking of just not having the patience to actually appreciate what's some the culture that's there, just wanting to go from one thing to the next and not having that sort of comfortability and familiarity. Like failing the ritual, for instance. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or even just the idea that like their emotions take front seat to everything around them. You know, like yeah. that's such a oh, that's such a Western thing, too. Like, you I, know, I didn't save mine. I think of that line. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. Right. Like. <laughs> So and, and, and just even just the idea of the momentum for this film, you know, it kicks off with them running, you know, they're getting on the train. They don't have any even time to just get on the train. They're just kind of like, boom, 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 boom. We got to keep going, which is such an American thing to do when you're traveling. It's just like, what can we do next? What can we do next? What can we do next? There's no there's such an impatience. And it's and they're also like they're almost like petulant at sometimes, too, which is the way that they're they're sort of surroundings. Uh, especially compared to all the other people that are on the train too. So I, th- I think it's a little bit of both for sure. I, th- I think it's a l- little bit frustrating. I, I, again, I kind of do think it's both, but I think it seems like it's too carefully trying to elide, you know, like the eat, pray, love style. Yeah. You know, here's a girl who's going to tell you how to change your life back home. And I, I think that by only having you know, a few characters who are uh, Indian in the case of uh, Rita and I'm sorry, I can't remember her boyfriend's name, unfortunately. Um, but like I, in that case, I think it, it feels a little bit weird about some of that tourism stuff because yeah. at times it does feel, you know, self lacerating, but it, it also it seems like it's, kind of ignoring the more difficult path, which is them actually having a discussion with anyone. Well, and I think that's kind of what he's trying to get at is that you don't need to go anywhere to have some sort of spiritual reawakening. You just need each other sometimes. And I know that sounds so hallmark and everything, but I kind of get that's like the the shtick of the ending. It's just that, you know, they, they didn't even need their mother really. Like they just needed to be together to kind of vent their frustrations, you know? And I like... They more needed what she symbolically represented, but it does get into the point of to what end can you swallow the pill that they get what they need out of this place without ever truly engaging in the place. And I do Mm. think the film is a little more thoughtful than it gets credit for about Mm -hmm. playing around with that tension. But I also think like it's a question that's hanging over his work still, especially when you consider that that dialogue has popped up a lot in the past couple weeks in relation to Isle of Dogs. But I also think there's something 
really emotionally distant and sparse about this film in particular that's very interesting, especially when you pair it. And I didn't want to move on without at least talking a little bit about Hotel Chevalier, which is the short film that Mm -hmm. precedes the Darjeeling Limited. But if you look at any home release of it, it's presented even in home releases as part one of the Darjeeling Limited. And there's that really lovely dreamy moment near the end of the film where it just checks in on the inner lives of the characters on the train and these little rolling dioramas and Natalie Portman pops up there. And I mean, the lost mother figure, I won't spend too much time on it this week because we examined that at length last week, but that's very present in all of Anderson's work. And it's foregrounded in both parts here because Natalie Portman is very much this muse down to the way that she's framed as a statuesque nude at one point in Hotel Chevalier. But between that and Angelica Houston in the film proper, you get this really interesting tension of these man-children, another very common Anderson trope, trying to negotiate that absence in their lives without any real roadmap of how to do it because where so many of his protagonists are driven by some kind of pipe dream that helps them sort of sidestep the emotional weight of a thing like that, here that's front and center, them trying to reckon with that absence and being pretty bad at it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of them are all bucking their own sort of, like, uh, responsibilities, which is another <laughs> obvious trope of of Anderson's. I mean, you have, like, Peter, who is pretty much going to be a father soon and, you know, is disappointed because he anticipated a divorce, <laughs> which I, I still love. I love that about his arc. Uh, and then, you know, then you even have, I mean, like, even, you know, Francis, for the most part. I mean, he's just, it's it's very he's trying to ignore the reality of what's happening by like what you're saying, he's trying to force this trip, trying to force this identity because he just, he, it's almost like he's trying too hard to be like the older brother. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and meanwhile, Jack is just, he can't even finish his book. He can't find the ending. I mean, he's just trying to, it's almost like he's running away from trying to find an ending because if he finds the ending, he has to close the door on, you know, obviously what his relationship with Natalie Portman, I feel that's pretty much, the, the the reason why he's like ambivalent towards it. Yeah. Right? I mean, and I do think though, she's very much left a cipher, but by design. And I think that works better in the context of a 10 minute short than it might have if she was some extraneous side character in a prologue or something like that, which is why I actually kind of like that separate structure. Yeah. But I also think that to an end, he's setting her up as this manifestation of like the the hanging loss and ache over so many Anderson characters, mm-hmm. just this bygone person who doesn't even particularly seem that important to him. They don't much seem to like each other all mm-hmm. that much, but yet to Jason Schwartzman's protagonist, he, this, this is a profound loss and it's more, and I think it's very telling it's a profound loss because he assigns it as such to himself where so many of the characters that Anderson's played with over the years have at least had some reason, whether it's like the Jaguar shark murdering Esteban in Life Aquatic or something like that. They have something that's driving them. In Darjeeling, you see these people who have comparatively pretty banal lives mm-hmm. who are just sort of spurred on by this sense that they should be in action. Yeah. Well, I, I think that gets to the core of things are okay but why aren't they great? Maybe, you know, yeah. of like, you know, all three of them are fine. They all have their own respective lives with the exception of Francis that is bandaged up and all, but they're, they're, things aren't great. And it, it's, I don't know if that's, 
I think a lot of people probably criticize Anderson's characters in plights and conflicts because they are, these conflicts aren't so tragic. Some, a lot of the times they're just very like, you know, like you're saying banal, like there's, there's nothing really at loss. There's not, there's not a lot of stakes for a lot of these characters. It's just, if, if nothing happened to them in any of these things and they didn't learn anything, they'd probably go on living a pretty good, okay life. But here's the thing. It's like, and I always bring this, this, this quote up, but you know, it's, uh, I had, when we did this, I did that story with uh, Wilco a few, like a couple of years ago. And, um, and like Jeff Tweedy at the time, he, he, we were talking about like, you know, like rock stars that can't really, you know, a lot of people say like, Oh, what, you know, what, what do they, what do they, you know, like their privilege and all this other stuff. But he did a go that was just saying like, look, if you're like feeling, if you're feeling through the, if you're going through shit, like, you know, nobody can tell you otherwise. Like you're, if you're not feeling it, you're like, you know, everyone goes through shit. And like, and I think that's so true with these characters that like, you know, like, yeah, we might on the outside, they just, it might feel like, eh, well, well, like whatever. But like, there's a complicated sort of conflict to each one of these characters that goes far deeper than something that can be solved with like, Oh, a girl that comes back or, you know, Oh, if the family comes back together, like I, I, I think with, especially what makes Darjeeling so separate and so visceral is that I don't think any of these characters actually can recover. I think these are like pretty much they're in their sort of stasis of how they are going to be for the rest of their lives. And that that's the sort of existential dilemma of this movie is that I thought there would be something more to life. I thought there'd be something more to family. I thought there'd be something more to this trip and there isn't. And it's just going to keep going just like the train. will. and you might get lost occasionally, but you're still going to have to keep going because you're on the track. And I think that's kind of like the sort of, that's why I love this movie is because that is such a realistic sort of conclusion as opposed to some sort of awakening that you're going to have. Because honestly in life that doesn't always happen and usually doesn't like next day is just going to come and you're still going to have those problems. Even after you come up to some sort of revelation, you know, and I don't know. It's for me, that's that, that's what makes this such an impactful film because that, that, that sort of realism is something I personally didn't expect from Wes Anderson, which I guess is kind of a dick move on my part, <laughs> you know, like, but, uh, as you describe it, I'm now seeing the comparisons to like, you know, Il Sopressa or, or, you know, like Antonio, like that makes more yeah, sense to me. Totally. Know, as you're, Describing like that like ending that. of the, that ending of uh, La Dolce Vita, and he's just you know he's standing at the edge of the beach, and he sees the young girl. It's like that that to me like that sort of like oh, now what sort of feeling is very very like you know embedded in this movie. I feel well, and it's interesting that you bring up Anderson protagonists having the quote unquote problem of relatively stable lives. Because I feel like that's a good way into the final of our discussion topics this week, the Grand Budapest Hotel, which I would argue is really the first time that you've seen the real world and not just real world problems and real world drama. And I want to make that distinction clear, but it's the first time that you see canonical established outside the film reality impacting an Anderson film storytelling in a really meaningful way. Because after a filmography full of movies where, I, yeah, I know, but after so many films where he plays around with these versions of reality and these realities filtered through his own vision of the world, 
Grand Budapest Hotel is like watching reality burst forth like alien style out of a Wes Anderson movie (laughs) in this really interesting way because it's a Wes Anderson movie against the backdrop and the very real pain and legacy of the Holocaust and of Nazism and fascism at large. So, but it's still powder pink and candy colored. Yeah. Which I guess is kind of my problem with it is that um, it seems a little too precious uh, given the context. I, I look, I love the Grand Budapest Hotel. There's an, there actually isn't a movie of his I do not love. Like I really, I mean, I love all of his movies, even even Moonrise Kingdom, uh, which I feel like everyone always calls out on. But um, for me, it's the uh, yeah. I, I never I never get a sense that I grapple the drama in this um, from a f- from a more personal standpoint. I always get it from the the subtext and the context of what it means like for me it's the actual the structure and the format of this movie hits me harder than any of the actual conflicts that are going on in the characters sure. because it's that that sort of cumulative real, yeah like the, the cumulative nature of what stories what happens to lives lives become stories stories become told by other people who also die and it becomes almost like this russian tea doll which is what the movie's kind of set out to to be structured as. And that's there's something really tragic about that. And to your point about it being like a real life history, that is history in the sense it's history is is told and controlled by ge- the, the 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 next generations. And how many stories have been lost over time and that by by that proxy, how many people have been lost and how many conflicts and loves and relationships. And for me, that's what hits harder from hardest for me with Grand Budapest Hotel and you know and So given this week that a lot of people, especially around the Chicagoland area, have been remembering the legacy of Roger Ebert on the fifth anniversary of his passing, um, there was a line from one of his final essays before he passed. And I don't I doubt that he was the first to say it, but it's always his example that stuck with me. But and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's the idea that you die twice. Essentially, you die once when your soul leaves body or however you parse out the final frontier, whatever that may be to you. The second time is when your name is set alive loud for the last time. Yeah. And I think that's very much what Grand Budapest Hotel is driving at. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, oh man, that's a great, that's a great line. <laughs> Damn. That's, uh, it's, well, Just throws rest out assur- a golden nugget like nothing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> rest assured, uh, he'll, uh, he's, many people will be talking about Roger Ebert for, for, for a very long time. Uh, probably longer than, uh, Wes Anderson actually. But, um, I, for, yeah, I mean that, that, for that, that final shot, is just, ugh, God, it just kills me. It just, because it's like how many characters that we just watched and loved are now f- totally forgotten, you know, like that nobody even knows about at this point. And it's just, uh, I don't know. I'm going to give an example that I don't mean to sound as callous as it's going to, and I promise that. But it's like when you watch a movie from like 20 years ago and there's a dog in it. And you watch like my example is always you go back and you watch Independence Day, the scene where the dog survives the bridge fire and you go, that dog's dead now. (laughs) I always love doing that. (laughs) And that's just that's the sobering moment you have, though. Like, I I don't mean to cheapen or diminish your point, but it's that whole idea. You look at somebody and you go, they're gone. I have that feeling when I watch old films a lot. Mm -hmm. Like there's something unjust about watching someone who was so moving and so affecting at their work. And they're gone. Yeah. And that's just, that's mortality. You don't get to rail against that. But there is something very harrowing about that experience. Yeah. Like, you know, the Gary Shandling documentary just came out. 
four-hour epic of Judd Apatow's. Uh, and I was watch, I've been watching a lot of the Larry Sanders show lately because of it, and there are just so many scenes where he's... I, I think there was one episode I was watching where it was like Warren Zevon and then Tom Petty and then also Gary Shandling. And literally the only person that's still alive on that entire set is like Jeffrey Tambor that's sitting right there, which is so creepy to me because it doesn't feel that far away. And I think honestly with just the war relationship with like celebrity deaths over the past few years between like, you know, Prince and David Bowie, these people that were so permanent fixtures in pop culture. I think that's, it's, it's honestly, I mean, my, my, I've, my full confession, I've actually never, I've only been to like one funeral and it hasn't been my mm-hmm. own family. Um, and it was a closed casket also. So I've, and I didn't actually go to the, the actual grave. So it was just, so for me, it's like, I'm still kind of like, I, I obviously I understand the concepts of death and everything, but that feeling of these people being lost is, I feel like over the last few years, um, has definitely hit like home, uh, in a weird way that I haven't actually felt like it, it's like, Oh wow. Like mortality is really kicking in at this point. I understand. I'm not, you know, a kid listening like to the rock and roll, like the who being like, oh, I hope I die before I get old. It's like, no, I am actually getting old now. And now I actually have to think about, Oh, so death is actually going to be happening. Interesting. So, um, and, and, and what's, it, it's almost like if you look back, I feel like people in hindsight are going to look back and, um, the grand Budapest hotel, and this is going to sound like in conclusion that it's not, but, and I feel like people are going to say like, this should have been his last movie because it, it's such a, I feel like it's such a, a commentary on storytelling in general that it's like such a perfect like button and a way, especially the way that it ends, mm-hmm. it almost feels like that's it. You know, <laughs> like that's the, that's the, that's the, the Wes Anderson filmography, uh, if you will. But you know, obviously that's not going to happen. He's still young. He's probably gonna make 30 more movies or whatever, but I don't know. I digress again. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think that's really interesting. Cause I, especially I can't help but think of that last scene, which, uh, Spoiler alert, I might talk about it a little bit later, but yeah. um, like I, I think the fact that, t- to speak to your criticism about it being precious, I, I think why I don't find this precious is that, you know, the most Rococo uh, choice, like filmmaking choices uh, are mostly contained within yeah. the flashbacks. And when you think of that last sequence, um, there's such a like modest and, you know, like funereal. Uh, oh, totally. Yeah, funeral feeling. Yeah, sorry, I don't say that word very often. No, it's funny. I I type it all the time, and then I I agree with you. Yeah, like it's so hard. I never actually. I don't even know if I've ever really said it loud. But you're not alone. Yeah, but uh, that like that specter that's hanging over it again. I I think makes this film. You know, it's not only cumulative, but it's what makes so much of this. uh, This is probably my favorite Anderson film. Yeah. and yeah, I, I think I think there are yeah, I don't know. I, I partly do kind of wish it was a, a final film. Honestly, like there is something so um, as you're saying to put a button on it and something. You know, it's it's really weird when you're talking about you know like losing Bowie and Prince, and, and you think about I think Wes Anderson especially is going to be someone who is you know. Not repertory. His uh, repertoire of actors has yeah. been so consistent, right? Yeah, that so many of these actors are going to be remembered so specifically for these films. Mm-hmm. You know, from um, Bill Murray to uh, uh, to Owen Wilson to Jason Schwartzman, etc. So, yeah. like, I, I think this especially was. It's interesting that you mentioned it because I think this was the moment that I was really thinking about 
hey, I've seen the, this cast like yeah. age, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, that's a good point that you say about like the bookends of the film being a little bit more from like a gripping reality, which I agree with, Like, which is probably why when it goes back into the past, you get sucked into the kind of, again, there's that word, but that whimsy of, of a Wes Anderson film that's sort of like those raw doll pastiche, like that, that kind of has always been center of his work. And I think your point is actually kind of why I feel it it is like a very final film because it's like him saying like, we're going to go into everything I've done and then we're going to go back. It's almost very similar to like David Lynch's, uh, the twin peaks, the return, which came out last year. Um, and yes, this is another podcast in which I brought up David Lynch's and, and twin peaks. That I'm now makes it. it every podcast that we have on the CPN, uh, network. This is great. Um, but it's that, that you get the, you get the sense that he's using every tool in his toolbox with, with, with Grand Budapest Hotel and especially like, sure. you know, three different film stocks. Yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> so. Well, and I think there's something to be said for the way in which it mimics how we remember things. Mm-hmm. Memory is always rose colored, even yeah. when bad things are happening mm, that's a good in point. it. Yeah. And I think particularly in that really brutal finale, it gets at the point the past is beautiful, but bad things were happening. And I think there's a really interesting comment on nostalgia in there, too. And maybe it's the fact I just saw Ready Player One a couple days ago that's bringing this to mind. But oh, it no. really, I, yeah, I, yeah. We'll get to that. <laughs> hey, at the I had break. fun with that one. <laughs> well, we're, we're just going to move on from that right now yeah, because yeah. I didn't do Spielberg for this <laughs> season yeah, of filmography. Yeah. But I think there's a similar stab at commentary here about the ways in which both our nostal- what shapes our nostalgia and how we choose to include and more crucially omit things from our nostalgia because that's the thing a lot of people reckon with whether it's the people wistful for the 50s who want back the horrors of the civil rights movement in exchange for the relative tedium of the baby boomer lifestyle it's you get the 80s where people are wistful for the arcade days while like Reagan and AIDS and crack were happening yeah. every era has its nostalgia carefully allied the ugliness of the time and I think Grand Budapest is directly engaging with that totally. in a lot of really interesting ways yeah I, I think you know to go back to like why I think it is more precious it has not not, not so much aesthetically I just think like it's that you when you watch the scenes, uh, particularly like a lot of his supporting cast, it seems so self-aware in a way that the, that I felt the Life Aquatic was when I first saw it. Because when I um, I love the Life Aquatic, and I actually think it's probably his his best rewatchable film. Because you every time you watch it, there's just something else that you're going to take away from it. And and I actually started off being very disappointed because I Royal Tenenbaums just blew my mind when I saw it as when I was in high school. So I was in college at the time, and it just for me, Life Aquatic felt very, um, it was like, all right, Anderson, you're getting a little too cute here. And I feel he does it, uh, you know, a bunch of times throughout this movie, but, um, but it's, it's never enough to, you know, detract me like that. There's never like his, his own self-awareness has never been, um, detrimental to the film. I don't, I don't feel, but that's where I meant, I meant when in terms of like preciousness where you have like the quintessential shots that he, he always does. And you can tell the actors are, they're very knowledgeable over that. Whereas, you know, in earlier films, it was so new and so young and so fresh that there was, again, that word, that naivete, like to, (laughs) to like their performances where they were just kind of like in it. And it was, it felt a little more um, organic. 
Whereas with this one, it just feels like everyone knows they're in a Wes Anderson movie and they're going to act like they're in a Wes Anderson movie. Like, you know, which, which is honestly to the, like, I think it, the worst case of this is in Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, and, and I, I, cause I, I was joking earlier before this podcast saying that I feel like Moonrise Kingdom is the closest approximation to this Saturday Night Live, like a horror film one, because it's so tweet and so like there, there's not a, like, there's very, I think there's a lack of depth to that movie that a lot of his other films do have, does have. Um, and like, so for, for this one, that's kind of where I get where it's just like a part of me wishes there was a little bit more of the, the sort of gritty realism that you get in the bookends. But then again, I'm going to counteract my, my own point. I think there are a lot of instances where there is that in that, where there is some visceral, there's some just really engaging violence and some very surprising sort of stakes, uh, that, that you get in this film that, I mean, it's a day you do feel the danger, for, uh, through this, uh, so I do think that it saves that. But anyway, it's, it's probably the most graphic Anderson film, other than like Life Aquatic. I think so. Yeah, that Life Aquatic. I remember has a few like, grizzly. Well, it's what happened with Jeff Goldblum's character alone is just like what happens. That's right, is pretty goddamn dark. <laughs> I mean, it's just. I remember when that happened because I had seen the music box had this this amazing Wes Anderson of. Uh, filmography basically like showed everything they tend to do this sometimes at the music box here in chicago where they just put everything they can on the screen and um uh and i I just happened to manage to get one of the all access things i'd seen everything but when that scene happened with jeff cole i remember everyone was just like what the fuck like it was was (laughs) such an early screening of the movie too and people were just gasping like it was just like and that's what i love about his violence but i do i agree with i I think the violence in this is definitely the most jarring out of any of his movies so you know, like I think of the finger yeah. that comes off in the door <laughs> of uh, wait, is that Goldblum? That's Goldblum. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's Poor Goldblum. Up. And even like what happens with like Willem Dafoe, like yes. you know, he's an awful <laughs> you know character, but it's still like, well, all right, I did not expect that to happen. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll we'll get into line readings later, but Ralph finds oh. line reading right when William Dafoe is pushed off a cliff. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, indeed, we will get to line reading soon. But before we get there, we're going to take a very short intermission break. And we'll be back in a second with the second half of Filmography the Third. Welcome back to Filmography. If you're somehow just joining us in the middle of this podcast, this week we are talking about Wes Anderson, the dramatist, as seen through The Royal Tenenbaums, The Darjeeling Limited, and The Grand Budapest Hotel. Before the break, we talked about the films at large. Now we're going to start breaking it down into finer pieces a little bit. And as with any Anderson film, you can't talk Anderson without talking cast. So of all the performances in these three movies... I'll just let you guys take it away. Who stands out to you? Who has stuck with you over time? Gene Hackman. <laughs> I love Gene. I love Gene Hackman so much. Uh, this is a guy that has such an amazing resume. You go to welcome I'm, to Mooseport. <laughs> yeah, oh, welcome to Mooseport. It's great. No, uh, I love. You know, oh my god. I mean, it just there's so many roles that he's had over the years where you, you just go, oh, pure Hackman, vintage Hackman, et cetera, et cetera going back to the seventies even. And then, and, and, but this, I don't think any of them hold a candle to his performance as Royal Tenenbaum, who, who I think is the greatest character in Wes Anderson's entire like cast and collection or rogues gallery of characters. I think, I think Royal is so fucking interesting. I think he is, 
is just is ridiculous in all the right ways. Uh, he's he's larger than life in all the right ways. I think that um, the his interactions with everyone uh, speak to <laughs> Hackman's um, probable probably subtle ambivalence to what the hell is going on in Anderson's filmmaking style. I, I just think he's he's just such a I could have watched a, a million movies with him as, as characters. I, I just think he's like something like a, an Amelia Bedelia, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and and for me, he just his sort of like um, unconscious unconscious style or performance uh, makes his character that much more interesting to me. And, um, and, and he's probably the most quote worthy out of all of them. I mean, Oh my God, like every one of his lines is like worth like putting on an aim away message or, uh, uh, yeah, I just went back to aim because guess what? That's what I had <laughs> when the Royal Tenenbaums came out. So that's, that, that's carbon from, dating yourself. Yeah, I am <laughs> totally carbon dating myself. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think with all, it's also, he's, he's one of the more, interesting characters to me also just because there's so much pathos to him that that's earned you know like he doesn't um you know you wouldn't think that he's such a sympathetic character because of all the shit that he's done to his family but he is because as you see at the end he's kind of the glue that's really holding everything together and 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 it's and i for me i think that's kind of like the big twist is is that you're like oh well without him they're they aren't the Tenenbaums really I mean they're just kind of this disparate crew as we were discussing and are hinting at earlier you know well and not to get cute about it but it's right there in the title the entire unit (laughs) is defined by him yeah they are the royal Tenenbaums Mm -hmm. that's what the movie's about it's like when Matthew McConaughey says rain of fire in the film rain of fire (laughs) same idea love the titular line great. I, I think that he walks a tightrope too in terms of being a trickster and a dickhead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, when you think of, I, I think of his you know, how he talks to Chaz in, in the closet and like, speaking of like the strange fish out of waterness of Gene Hackman in a Wes Anderson movie is that it seems like he doesn't quite know how to modulate some of Wes Anderson's dialogue, so he sometimes yeah. just screams it, mm-hmm. which is weirdly really beguiling and, yeah. and charming. And and I think that, like, yeah, I, I think that, again, the the fact that he can seem kind of, like, lovably warm and totally clueless, but also... You know, kind of snipe at, you know, like uh, Danny Clover's character in yeah. the kitchen and say things that are like subtly racist. Oh, like totally. you should never, I shouldn't say subtly. He says jive, yeah. which is, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, not he calls, something you would expect them to say in 2001, no. let alone when you're rewatching Airplane and it comes up. It, it's that, that, that sort of like, um, that sort of classic old man um, sensibility that you kind of, you don't exactly give a pass to, but you kind of give a pass to in the sense you're just like, okay, whatever. He's from a different era. He's clearly not a bad guy, but he's got some, you know, obviously some, some kinks in his, uh, no pun intended, uh, in in his style. Uh, but yeah, for, for, for me, like that, that absolutely pinpoints, why I love uh, his character so much because he does feel like such a fish out of water. And, and at, at this point in in Wes Anderson's career, every one of his films had a character or an actor, and I guess conceivably a character actor, um, that did 
feel like a juxtaposition. You know, like obviously there's Battle Rocket with James Caan, Bill Murray in Rushmore. I mean, you have to look back and think of the context of it, but it was a very jarring you know, thing to see like Bill Murray in this kind of more subdued sort of comic performance, even though he had been doing a bunch of those in the eighties, but in terms of like a mainstream or like an indie film that was more pronounced and more popular, that was still a very jarring thing to do. And it did kind of set the, the parameter for what he would actually end up doing even just up until today. And then with this one, it's like Gene Hackman and you can argue Danny Glover also, I would, I would feel, because I think both of them do feel kind of like, like the most like fish out of water, like performances. <laughs> but, I, but I would say, you know, Gene Hackman and, you know, to a point, even Danny Glover, they do feel like the, the fish out of water here. And I, and I think those are always going to be the most interesting Wes Anderson characters for me. Cause they're, for me, they, they, they're not just the, the easiest ones to connect as a viewer, because you also do kind of feel like a fish on a water watching these movies. Cause you're like, what is this world? Why? Like, where is this taking place? What is going on? Um, why does it feel like one of my raw doll books came to life? Uh, but for me, it's, it makes the narrative that much more interesting because you, there's an unpredictability to it. And like I, and I've, I've said that before with, in this podcast, but, um, for me, it's, you, you never know what Royal's going to do. You never know what Herman's going to do. And you really don't know what the hell James, Con, James Conn's going to do in, in Bottle Rock, which is why it's so great to watch them. They're so magnetic. And it kind of goes back to that sort of 70s style filmmaking where the, the, the nuance of the characters could drive a narrative. And that's where I feel like these characters, specifically Royal, uh, really kind of hone in. I, I mean, I would argue that as, as, as much as Royal Tenenbaums is an ensemble, I really do think it rests on Gene Hackman's shoulders in this movie. And more so than any other character in, 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 in any of the movies, because at least you have like a foil for, I feel like, I feel like Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray kind of totter on, on like a seesaw in that, whereas... Hackman really kind of has to just carry this, like just carries a lot of the fucking action and narrative that's going on with this. But I, I think too that uh, I, what who I want to talk about specifically is Margot played yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow, and I I think it's very interesting that you just mentioned, you know, that he has to hold so much weight because mm-hmm. Margot is someone who you know, pins herself as an outsider and also feels it in very material ways from yeah. literally the first, you know, one of the first scenes there's, you know, kind of a, uh, a tart, uh, flashback where, uh, Margot, uh, stages her first play and mm-hmm. <laughs> she asks yes. Royal, you know, how, how it was. And, and he's like, well, you know, I didn't think that the animals were very realistic <laughs> or something along those lines. It's like, what was real about it? There was no, there were a bunch of animals. Or he's like smoking so casually and matter <laughs> yes. of fact about it. Oh, God. I mean, we're not talking about deliveries yet, but God sure. damn it, his line to real deliveries. Yeah. Just the fact that she like walks past her mother, like downstairs. Yeah. Angela K. Houston's character. But yeah, I, you know, I think that Margot, having seen the Royal Tenenbaums a couple times, I, I think Margot is someone with kind of um, deceptive depths. I, yes. I, I, oh, I totally. think that. You know, as much as she is a avatar of kind of like seventies French new wave, you know, she is a the disaffected, uh, you know, um, yeah, disaffected heroine of you know that would show up in Truffaut or a Godard film. Yeah, but I, I think that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow grounds a potential character um, in like 
some really identifiable routine or sorry, I used routines earlier rituals like it in terms of uh, her smoking, which is hidden from her entire family and oddly becomes this very emotional thing in this kind of rollicking. <laughs> she smokes rollicking montage set, set to the Ramones. Yeah. But like also, I think that um, for a film that's so much about feeling not a part or, or of feeling obligated to be a part of something, but not feeling a part of it. Margot's journey is um, so much more direct, explicit yeah. than even someone like Chaz, who is like, you know, grieving um, or, or uh, Luke Wilson's character who, you know, who is uh, nursing a, a long love yeah. for Margot. I, I actually, yeah, I, I kind of take it back in the sense that, there's the it's almost like the a, a pixie song for for the two performances here. You got the loud and the soft, and you got the loud that's <laughs> royal, who definitely is such a, a, a backbone to this family. But I agree that Margot also serves as like a spine uh, to, to this for sure, and it's the more subtle sort of foundation uh, in a. Take a moment for yourself. Download Pet Rescue Saga and bring a little color to your day. Just match two or more blocks of the same color to clear the level and save the pets. But moves are limited, so plan them carefully. With eye-catching graphics and colorful gameplay, work your way through hundreds of pet-puzzling levels. From the makers of Candy Crush Saga, King presents Pet Rescue Saga. Download it from the App Store or Google Play. Sense that that seems to kind of be more sedentary and grounding a lot of the the drama in in a certain way well and i think to an end if you take all the kids as the film's way of illustrating who royal was and what he left these three children to carry in his stead Margot is the one who wears it all on her sleeve because richie suffers quietly until it bursts out of him near the end of the film chaz suffers quietly in his own neurotic way Margot's the one who latches onto every vice she can get her hands on at a very young age. And she's the one who really has to publicly wear that way. Yeah. Even in a physical totem in terms of her finger. I mean, even just like the idea of like her actions, like the idea that she travels, she's trying to find herself. She's trying to understand who she is and who she can actually be accepted by. And, and it's, it's such a, her own plight is so, um, it's such a good summation of everything that's going on in that family is everyone's just trying to find their sense of place and she can't, she, she, I feel it at some point and early on and you know, we were joking about the, the play scene, but it could have very well been then where she realized like, this is not, this place is not for me. I, mm-hmm. this is my family, but I, I am, but it's also not my family, you know, especially for her who is adopted. But, um, I, I think they're, it's interesting, you know, that you have someone that, is supposed to be the, 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 the patron saint or the, the sort of, um, mascot for the family, like Royal. And then someone that's like this, the spirit of the family. So, um, is so it's like, is so metaphorically tied to Margot. Um, this, you know, this character that, as you're saying, yeah, she does wear everything on her sleeve and she also really does kind of just wander. She just, she's just a wandering soul. And and I think all of them are in a sense. They just, she just kind of goes the distance <laughs> in a weird way. And another thing too, the last thing I want to say is I think it's really crucial too, that she doesn't necessarily push away a Royal. Yeah. Like uh, 
especially more than Chaz, she's willing to let Royal into her life. Yeah. Like, even as she has had experiences of continually being pushed away or being excluded based on gender or based on, you know, her being adopted. Yeah. Or any variety of things. Yeah, because isn't she, like, one of the first people to actually, like, go and see him? When he comes back, right? They go on a they go to lunch together, and I mean, like Chaz yes. is like the last person to really kind of actually want even want to talk to Royal. Um, at that sense, so, yeah, that's a good point. I never even thought about that. That is really interesting. She doesn't actually really push him away, even though he's no. been like awful to her. Well, and if we're talking people who exist at the fringes, this is as good a time as any to also bring up Eli Cash and Owen Wilson's work in the film, because Wilson gives a pair of standout performances in the films we're talking about. And we already touched on a lot of the soul of his work in the Darjeeling Limited. So I'll keep my talk more to Eli. And Rothman, I'll let you on in, in on this in a minute, because I know you love him. But... I think in Eli, you also get this very particular kind of portrait of a sad person that Mm -hmm. I think is really distinct and really exists almost separately from a lot of Anderson's work because the the film very much makes clear Eli is pathetic in a lot of objective respects. (laughs) Eli is a drug addict. Eli is dressed ridiculously. He is a walking billboard for arrested development, (laughs) even by the standards of a family that is full of that kind of thing. But at the same time, you also you get through Wilson this image of someone who and again, I won't drag us back through the point of reading beyond the text so much this half, but you get the vision of someone who wants to be so so close to success and it's so within his grasp that the pain of not being able to make that final reach and claim it as his own thing is tearing him apart in tiny, tiny increments. I always got the sense that the the Eli role was Anderson's way of um, including his classmates or, you know, <laughs> including his the, the people he knew in the art scene because it's such a there's such an inside baseball uh, kind of through line to his story that is so you kind of had to know someone that has lived this type of life to actually come up with just how strangely detailed his character is, especially compared to everyone else. Like you could almost make the argument that like there's more to Eli cash than anyone else in this movie. Well, and I hate to say if any, I mean, even you guys just hanging out in artist circles have probably come across an Eli cash somewhere or another <laughs> totally. deadline. Like the guy who's adjacent to famous people is not actually famous or particularly skilled himself. And just like uses that little bit of social and cultural cachet to do a lot of drugs. Like yeah. a lot of us have met that dude at some point or another. And, let's be honest it's always a dude and i think there's something in eli that really hurts though because i do think he's very fully drawn for a side character i absolutely agree and i think wilson really brings something out of him about how he's he's trapped in a very different kind of arrested development from the tenenbaums because it goes back to that point we made towards the top of the podcast the Tenenbaums are only going to be in so much pain because they're all hyper-intelligent and they're all rich. Eli is that guy existing at the periphery who maybe isn't going to have those same luxuries. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think there's something, too, to say that, like, you know, at, I, I don't want to villainize the Tenenbaums, but I think there's something very codependent and poisonous about his, uh, you know, orbit around yeah. this family. Like, this dying for validation is what's, you know, kind of putting him in this narcoticized state. Like, 
Yeah. And that's what you get some sort of pathos for him, too, which is like, and you know, like when you find out that he's been sending his like homework and his grades to, <laughs> to Edwin. All the clippings. Like, I just, oh, God, that kills me. And it's just, he's just, there's, I mean, even just the paintings that are in his, in his home that's still, I think that was a background sequence. forever. Oh, my God. And all the porn tapes that are everywhere. I mean, they're like huge, giant, those old school, like 80s, 90s, giant porn tapes that are like stacked next to his small televisions. And, you know, he, the, the knowledge that he's probably doing like mescaline and probably even heroin at some point. I mean, it's just like the, the whole thing is just wild. Wild. wild <laughs> wow. I, I just I, I love. Oh, my God. And then there's he has one of my favorite uh, just random visual jokes in any of the Wes Anderson movies when Royal sees him climbing out of the, the, the window he's like, Hey you. And then all, all, he, all Eli does is just reach his hand out and like, and then leaves. And it's just so like, <laughs> it's just so like, he, he's so theatrical without, without having any sort of like reason to have that sort of theatricality or any, there's no weight to him. He's just, he's, 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 he's like, he's so, so paper he's so thin like there's nothing there's no, there's no depth like or, i mean there is a lot of depth but in terms of like his what his his aura there's not much there other than just he's kind of just floating and just seeing what he can grab to make himself seem more interesting and it, there's that desperation is so i, I don't know it, it cracks me up it's like it's he's one of my favorite characters also from from anderson's he should have showed up in like boogie nights yeah right oh he <laughs> totally could have <laughs> Like at the or ending. inherent vice. Well, I guess he could have just. I mean, inherent vice. Owen Wilson's character is a little bit. Yeah, Eli right. Cash, he so is a little like, bit. Yeah. yeah. Coy Harlingen is just the later years of Eli <laughs> Cash, honestly. Um, but no, I think there's. Yeah, I think there's something there about the idea of Anderson characters who, especially as a dramatic model, are kind of constructing their own realities for themselves. Yeah. And the ways in which the films kind of play with like the actual reality reality around those self sustained realities is often really interesting. I think another really great example of that is Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel who goes out of his way to be this larger than life mythical figure and he's kind of building his own rolling mythology for himself as he goes along and I, I love this performance in every respect. I also just really love the character I Gustav is terrific. He is like one of cinema's greatest pansexual heroes. Yes. He mm-hmm. is all around just one of Anderson's greatest creations. Mm-hmm. It, his dialogue fits Ray Fiennes like such a glove that it's almost shocking it took them that long to work together. I'd argue like Gene Hackman this is his best role. I I think it's absolutely up there because yeah. I think he there, that snakiness that and I I'm going for the Voldemort joke there and I'm ashamed <laughs> of myself but I I do think though that so pe- most people know him as Voldemort or as like the villain in Schindler's List not great things to be remembered as overall what about the English patient no no no. English, I guarantee you, more people in our general age range know the English patient for the Seinfeld yes, bit than they do, they do the movie yeah, itself. Totally do. I yeah. firmly maintain yeah. that. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but no, I think in the case of his work in Grand Budapest Hotel, you see him in very much the same way that the movie does, negotiating that tension between being this screwball protagonist, like you mentioned, Preston Sturgis earlier. 
And I think he's very much in that tradition with the way he delivers a lot of his dialogue. Like him talking to Tilda Swinton's corpse is pure dirty screwball. But then you have this very real ominous terror hanging over the performance that really starts to beat him down more and more visibly as the film goes on. And I think that's gorgeous. I I think it's you mentioned pansexual already, but I I think part of the reason I really love that character, too, is it's one of the only queer coded characters in. I don't know in any of Anderson films. I, I might be, I might be wrong. There might be some exceptions, but yeah, yeah I, can't, just, I can't think of any actually. That's Jeff Goldblum in Life Aquatic, y'all. Oh, is he? Yeah. Okay, shoot. But I, I guess what I'm saying is he just uh, he brings such a different energy than than so many of the usual yeah. uh, protagonists, and and, and in, you know he still has a lot of the qualities we associate with Wes Anderson, and he's an overachieving, yeah. you know, uptight, uh, very fastidious. But there is also something uh, playful here that that goes far beyond his like professionalism. Like his overachieving isn't like a quirk; it's like a part of his being. Yes, yes, and I think that's so important. He's a person who is made of affectations and it's easy to read that as cutesy or twee or whatever, but Mm -hmm. that's that's Gustav. That is unabashedly him to a T Mm -hmm. and there's something kind of lovely about that. Just an Anderson character especially when Anderson plays so much with insecurity of all kinds as a central motif. An Anderson character who is just so brazenly himself kind of cuts through a lot of that noise. Well, it's it's just one of those, I would say it's like his Tarantino moment here in which he once again perfectly grabs an actor that you really didn't expect. And I think at this point you kind of can see Ray Fine, like, he, you know, it makes sense that he would be in a Wes Anderson movie at this point. But still, he's definitely, I would argue out of all of them, he probably is like the more fish out of water um, in this in this respect. But like, like Tarantino, at his best, he's paired a character, he's modeled a character so well for, for an actor that, you didn't really expect this from him. I, I mean, I didn't like, I, I mean, I've, and I've seen a lot of his work, but you know, granted he's, he's, he does play villains a lot, but, and I know he's been in a lot of like, you, you know, like more like humorous, like, uh, productions with a lot, definitely more dramatic angles to it. But I, I mean, I was blown away by his performance when I saw this for the first time. I just did not expect him to be this outrageously funny and, and and just as witty. I mean, like he, it's, it's such a good marriage of dialogue that you, yeah, you don't, I mean, it's very scripted obviously just because all of his, all of of Anderson's works are obviously clearly scripted, but they, this is just, there is such, like you were saying, yeah, there is such an organic nature to him that like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, like like Royal, I feel he carries Grand, like he cr- absolutely carries the Grand Budapest Hotel. Like every one of his scenes is so fucking great. I love it, and I think even when it, the time it came out it was like right when um, uh, Consequence of Film had kind of started uh, coming up and running, and like his all his lines were so quote worthy. I mean, we were hanging out at like bars, like we were like everyone was doing his lines, like especially the whole like oh fuck it thing. Like I mean, that was like Blake's the biggest thing ever. I mean, it's just, I feel like the first he's like the first character since maybe early Anderson where you he is very quote worthy. Like since maybe Max. Life Aquatic. Oh, okay. Like oh yeah, like no Max, yeah for sure, for sure. Like because even like yeah, you know, Life Aquatic I would say is pretty quote worthy, but the other films at that point like it, it's he's like such an old school Anderson character in that way, but. 
Well, and if we're talking old school Anderson, we can also talk about Jason Schwartzman's work. He only has a bit part in Grand Budapest, but he's, as we talked about before the break, kind of the spine of the Darjeeling Limited in a lot of the respects. Because if you have this kind of narrative trio driving the action, he plays almost kind of a riff on Anderson as the public tends to imagine Anderson as kind of this smug dilettante. And I think there is like a little bit of self-reflexive commentary in like both the scripting of that character Some and then that performance. <laughs> <laughs> the best kind of indie ennui. Would you say he's the main character in Darjeeling? <sighs> That's hard to say because Hotel Chevalier definitely situates him as such. Yeah. But reading the film on its own, I would say Adrian Brody. But that that's a hard call to make because yeah. if you take the the short as part of the whole, as Anderson seems to intend that you do, it would definitely situate Jack as the protagonist at that point. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, Schwartzman's role in, in Darjeeling is probably the closest we've seen maybe Schwartzman coming out as, as in his real self and his like most honest self. I mean, like if you really look back in a lot of his filmography, he's always played these big caricatures, you know, I mean, especially in like the early two thousands. Alex know. Ross Perry yeah. stuff as well. <laughs> oh, totally for sure. And, and in this one, it's just, there's such a, I've used this word so many times tonight, but there is such a patience to his, his performance. And there's such a, um, Maybe not so much patience. I would say there's such a silence to his performance. A lot of it is very physical, and it's very subtle. It's very subtly physical, um, where he's, you know, he, he could be, he's, you know, he's in the foreground a lot, but the times when he's in the, actually in the background with the, the, the three of them, he's always bringing something to the story that even if he's not talking, you know, there's a grief to him. There's a, there's a, there's a weight that's on his back, and we obviously know because of the short in the, in the beginning of the film, but... You know what I what I love about that short and what it does to inform his character is that you know try to think about all the friends that that you've had that have broken up with someone and like the most annoying thing and this is something that's because I'm currently going through this right now but most of the friends like that you they usually like get so annoyed that this person is just kind of just standing there and like you know maybe mildly reckless in a sense because they're just yearning for some sort of like um attention or some sort of confirmation or some sort of they, they just need to like get that confidence back and a lot of the times they're just really moody or removed or just like really anxious and i feel like schwartzman captures that so well in this movie you know because when he's not like kind of screwing around i mean and, and it's all indicative in that one line that he says when she's you know like when Rita's like what's wrong with you and he's just like uh, let me think about that i'll tell you the next time i see you and it's just like he out of all the characters here like he is so he is like in a he's just in hell like a personal hell and like you know i, I tried and I, again i'm not to try to personalize this too much but the, the, the thing that I love about Darjeeling even more now, just watching it um, as I'm getting older, is seeing how the three brothers, uh, like how they deal with their own respective griefs. And especially with like Schwartzman's, he there's an absurdity to his actions in the sense that like, you know, he he's, he's very ostentatious with the, the you know, with Rita. Yeah, I, I think um, speaking of that kind of uh, 
that that kind of absurdity, but almost like a, a twitchiness. Mm-hmm. Like, like in, in the case of Jason Schwartzman, I think uh, I think Luke Wilson in, in the Royal Tenenbaums was uh, another role that I think is um, is kind of <laughs> really interesting. I, I find Luke Wilson to be one of those actors who does a lot with nothing. Yeah. Um, like, especially I think of like, I don't, I don't know if either of you guys have seen Enlightened, but he has a, a few episodes in that show that it's just fantastic. I, playing on, you know, this bedrock of grief, but uh, I, I digress. My, my point being, though, that Luke Wilson is someone who I think um, finds this like... Uh, this well of melancholy that's not just melancholy. Yeah. Like it's it's drifting through the world mm-hmm. in in a daze and he's like kind of living his life, but everything also seems to be in this in a dream, but not in the same way as someone like Eli Cash. Like yeah. It's it's something way less like manic. Yeah. It's it's a lot more yeah, like uh, drifting off and a lot more like he's just sleepwalking through life and, and trying to uh, reconnect with um, Margot. Yeah, well, I, I actually feel he's very intrinsically tied to Schwartzman's character, to Jack from Darjeeling, because they're both going through some sort of emotional conflict with a loved one. Like, you know, whereas Jack has is forced to go and be on this whole trip with two brothers that he doesn't really hang out with and he has to confront his own sort of conflicts because his his older brother like you know Francis is clearly begging it of him and it's just i mean when you're you have to think about like even when you're like going through grief of of a relationship you usually want to be like kind of isolated but even though you should be around people sure. but it's that sort of like forced nature of like no you need to be with everyone <laughs> but then every but then everyone wants you to be on your feet and like wants you to be like oh why aren't you happy like why aren't you smiling oh you'll get yeah. over it move on and like you know with, with with what makes Richie very similar is that he's like you know the brother that people are still kind of turning to in a weird way like yeah. even though they they know like I mean like Chaz thinks he's a loser but he still looks towards him in a weird way like in subtle sort of styles like he's still like kind of wants Richie to take the lead uh, which is kind of interesting and I feel feel what makes the the movie so interesting because it's like or what makes the movie so fascinating and real is because it's, that it just feels like a real family, you know, that these people are not willing to admit these things, but they are still doing it. Um, and so, yeah, like what I, I do agree that, like, I love that, that Wilson brings that sort of, um, that sort of, that sort of dread and grief of like the whole situation, but he's still owning it. He's still doing it and he's still there and he's still a presence, but his presence speaks volumes about, about like a multitude of things. It, it, he, I mean, he is going through the motions of Margo, but he's also going through like just where he is in life, which is, I think like he says a lot with, with very little, as you mentioned. And, um, and I, and I don't know if, I don't know many Wes Anderson characters that pull it off that well. I think he might be the best at that. I mean, you, you know, at this point where Anderson's work has been so, iconicized and, and, and made through Etsy paintings and all this other stuff. But Richie's always the one that you see so much because mm-hmm. I think just seeing him says so much about what the film and what 
he's going through and just there's just so much to, to pull away from him. It's almost like he's like a painting in a weird way. Um, Cause I don't even, he doesn't even have that many dialogue. I mean, he, I wouldn't be surprised sure. if you count it up and he has like 20 lines in the movie. You I, know? I feel like uh, one really important part of his character though, or I guess you should say his character, but the, the level of empathy within the film that Anderson's trying to communicate is that uh, no one's irritated with him for being depressed or no. being in this, you know, a funk like it, 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 they're irritated or, or they're annoyed because he left. Yeah. Like that's that's what it is with so many of these characters. The things they're going through don't necessarily bother the yeah. family. It's just what is lost without them yeah. being there. I agree. And we could spend the entire episode discussing all the other performances in these films, but we have to move on. But before we do, as we've made a weekly custom here, I want a quick set of words on your favorite Anderson side character. For me, it's, we already mentioned her, but Amara Karan as Rita in the Darjeeling Limited, because I feel like whatever we can say about the problematics of the film's depiction of Westerners in an Eastern space, we can absolutely say that Anderson gives you this really touching contained life in only a handful of scenes. And I think her performance contributes greatly to that. There is a soulfulness in every gesture. There is a really lovely aching undercurrent to so many of her interactions with her husband And it nails what I like about that film and the transience of that film because you're getting to witness this woman's life in passing, not through her own prism, granted, but certainly through one of empathy at the very least. And when the train goes on, Rita's just going to go on with it. And there's something kind of lovely and affecting and sort of permanent about that. I think going back to what you were saying about Rita – I can't remember whether it was uh, you or Michael mentioned it, but the the last kind of last scene where we uh, reunite with Natalie Portman's character, but we also briefly see Rita with uh, with a child. Yeah, with a child, and uh, yeah, with with the boyfriend who she's maybe still with or something. Yeah, the but, steward, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think that that scene as well, the fact that we spend such a short time with her at that beginning but then return to it in that final uh, yeah, final sequence. And that's the thing. You don't know if that's joyous or not, but you get that closure of a kind. Yeah, I don't think it is very joyous. I think there is some, I think she's just like, I think she's supposed to represent the idea that, you know, we all, doesn't matter where you're from, everyone's going through, again, going through something, and you, you're trapped in the life that you have, and, you know, sometimes you just got to keep, Rolling, <laughs> not to keep using that goddamn train metaphor, but I think that's true. I mean, it's, well, I took it as a limp biscuit metaphor. Oh yeah, so well, there you go. Keep on rolling, baby. Uh, but uh, you know, I've been loving this. Well, no, we're not. We're not bringing limp biscuit into a Wes Anderson uh, podcast. I. Um, what are their What are their uh, supporting characters? Should we uh, bring up? I don't know. Just a, a Snydell talk, so I stop quoting limp biscuit. <laughs> I'm good with you. Keep quoting uh, Limp Biscuit. Um, I, th- I love Fred Durst in uh, you know uh, Darjeeling Limited. I think he was great. In that <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they 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 didn't you know. I, I thought that uh, instead of Rolling Stones play with fire, they were originally going to go with rearrange. <laughs> um, but no, <laughs> some fun uh, trivia that you can you can cut. I, I found out that Sonic Youth and Limp Biscuit are on the same End of Days soundtrack. Oh, which wow. I have to think it might be the only time Limp Biscuit and Sonic Youth. 
were on the same soundtrack <laughs> with uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, yes. which had the the pre Chinese Democracy track back when they had an entirely oh different God. lineup. So ridiculous. Um, if I'm going to throw out one that we haven't really talked about, I think that it's so easy to forget that Ben Stiller was only in one Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, that's pretty weird because he's worked with everyone else from those Wes Anderson films <laughs> so many times in other films that I think it's he really he's only been Chance. And, and yet, uh, you know, th- maybe it's just because of the red jumpsuit that now I can't stop thinking of Jason Sudeikis' uh, red jumpsuit from the What Up With That sketch uh, from SNL. But um, he, I think, I think Ben Stiller, this is another one of the, like his top performances too. I mean, he's just, man, he, he's such a fire in, in Royal Tenenbaums. And like, I feel like him and Baumbach figured out how to use Ben Stiller. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think at like the time, because Squid and the Whale came out in 2004 and that was, um, that was Baumbach like right around the time that he started doing like Life Aquatic, yes. right? Those worked, were released in the same year, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I imagine around that, like, you know, yeah, he probably, I, I definitely think that... Um, Greenberg was maybe the first bomb. I, 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 yeah, I'm getting off track now. But, no, but that's a good point, though. Because sure. I, 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 it's interesting that he hasn't been in another Wes Anderson film, but he's been pretty much in that crew, or so to speak, around sure. that, that sort of extended family in a weird way. But I mean, yeah, his introduction here is just fantastic. Cause it's the, the first time we see him is when he does the drill, the fire, fire, <laughs> which, which is such a good summary of, of what Chaz is. Uh, and, and, and also really playing to the, the neuroses of Ben Stiller to such a, an interesting way without being, you know, very fairly brothers about it. You know, it goes back to kind of his nineties work in a way, but I, I love him in this. The other person I wanted to mention who I, I previously, previously mentioned uh, in relation to uh, Gene Hackman, but it's uh, Henry Sherman, again, who is the landlord played by Danny Glover in The Royal Tenenbaums. And again, this is, uh, this is another role that is, uh, you know, there's not a huge number of lines, but I think uh, both in terms of the presence he brings and and the sense that he's kind of always at the corner of whatever room he's set in, you you know, trying to find his way into this family, Mm -hmm. even as Angelica Houston, like uh, admits pretty early on that she's, you know, into him or in in love with him. Yeah. But I I think that Henry Sherman has a, again, I'll go back to like uh, a warmth and magnetism here that he brings to that character. Um, that even when he's, you know, trying to figure out that Royal is having Tic Tacs instead of pills. Yeah. Like, uh, that, that character, it, it feels like there's a lot more going on yeah. there. Um, and, and the sadness that, uh, comes across in a number of ways. And speaking of just like, uh, again, Wes Anderson's ability to just, you know, uh, pinprick you when you didn't expect it yeah that like the wedding scene uh where his son is there and then you, you find out that you know uh ben ben stiller actually and uh danny glover have that moment where yeah. they both talk about losing yeah someone i love that scene i love oh god that interaction is great the, the thing i love about um sherman is that like you said like yeah the minute you see him there's an implied history that anderson's so good at just kind of throwing out there without having to explicitly state it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think it goes to the fact that 
he does really feel like a son or a scholar of a 70s filmmaker. Like, I, th- I think, like, there's there's such a 70s style, like, there's a nuance to his s- sort of storytelling that he doesn't need to... I mean, <laughs> which is funny, because I guess Royal Tenenbaums has exposition, clearly with Alec Baldwin narrating and everything, but you don't even really need it all the time. Like, I think you could just literally watch this film and understand that there's the implied histories are all there. You know, they they wear it, you know, like there's, you know, there's a, there's a prestige to, to Sherman that, 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 that you just kind of infer, you know? And I, that's why I like his character a lot also is that, um, you know, right off the bat that him and Ethelin have a history that there is a romance there without them even having to embrace or kiss that there, there, there's a connection. And I mean, I think it just also speaks to just Anderson's way of being able to cast. I mean, I just think he knows how to just get the the right connections from his cast. And I, I, I can't really think of too many that don't really match, you know, maybe life aquatic. I think I, I always kind of had a problem with Kate Blanchett in the movie, but, um, cause I, I just don't know if she gels as well as, as the others do in that film, but She's I think that's kind of the point. Weird accent in that, if I remember correctly, she does. Yeah, or yeah. Like, and, and, but I think that. But then again, I think in hindsight, that's kind of the point. But in a in a way, because she's supposed to be the outsider. But yeah, with this, it's. Um, I think Sherman is such a good example of just of how Anderson can say so much with so very little. In, in summary, so. Well, and I think if we're talking about the ways in which these performances compose emotion, we can also jump into the ways in which visual composition kind of assists in that process. Because I think, especially in these films, they offer really interesting inversions of the Wes Anderson style, which odds are, if you're listening to this at home, you have some bearing, whether through Anderson's movies or just pop culture at large, of what that is. And we've talked about it the past few episodes, his diorama-like obsession with symmetry. But I think there's something really interesting, particularly when it comes to the dramatic end of his work, where he turns those dioramas almost into these cruel ant farms, in a way, Mm -hmm. where whether it's the Tenenbaum house, whether it's the train, which was an actual rolling filmable train set used in the Darjeeling Mm -hmm. Limited, you're sort of turning these spaces inward on these characters. And I think especially in these two and also with the prison sequences in Grand Budapest, there's a kind of claustrophobia that you don't always get out of his work for as ornate as the compositions are. Yeah, I think think one thing that we haven't really gotten into Darjeeling that much, which is why I find it, uh, it's kind of the outlier of these three in terms of like uh, Yelman and Anderson's approach. Like, you know, you, you've already mentioned Ant Farm, which is a wonderful description, but I, I was specifically thinking about a uh, fishbowl in terms of mm. uh, Darjeeling, because especially when it comes to those cramped quarters, and specifically one room that we spend, I'm going to say we spend a third there, yeah. a third of the movie. Yeah. Um, like, I, that is something that you don't expect from... Um, from Anderson and to, and to get a little bit more granular about what he's doing camera wise, I think it's, uh, he has, you know, he obviously has some signatures. He certainly likes his slow motion processions, but I, I think that also he deserves a lot of credit for the way he uses, uh, whip pants mm-hmm. and, um, the way that pans become a way to show momentum in a, in a conversation as much as like momentum in action. Like there is that big scene we already talked about at the end of Darjeeling limited, which um, really enough, this reminded me of lost city of Z from mm-hmm. last year. 
Um, but uh, I, I, I think that like this film is, is really fascinating, and I can't think of other times where he did go for this more naturalistic setup. Yeah. And, and going back to what maybe I just don't vibe with this one enough is it, it's that strangeness between like naturalistic blocking and the absurdity again, like pushed right <laughs> against up each other. Sorry, right up against each other, which is like very much uh, characteristic of his style. But, totally, yeah. But still, a little bit, uh, really anarchic for him. I would yeah. absolutely agree. I think one of the shots that really strike me, really struck me in revisiting Darjeeling Limited, was the very last image of the film as the credits begin to roll of the shot just sort of affixed to the side of the train as mm-hmm. it goes through its paces, whipping through the wilderness. And I realized there's a kind of openness and speed and freedom, essentially, to your point, in that shot that you don't see in a lot of Anderson's work at large. And I think you see that throughout the movie. I also think of a lot of the Rat in a Maze images where there's these long vistas where he makes his characters very, very small. And, I mean, that's that's a trick that's been in untold films for years. I'm immediately thinking a good time because I think about that movie all the time. But I you see that you see that everywhere. But there's this idea that he's almost putting his characters under a microscope in a very functional visual way. Well, it's his idea of a road trip movie. Like this is Darjeeling Limited is the closest he can come to being a road trip movie. And I guess you can maybe argue the same thing with Life Aquatic because they're on a boat and they're traveling and whatnot. But no, that's I mean, this is just this is his way of having that sort of that sort of bottled narrative that's that's uh, you know able to keep moving. And I agree like anarchic is like such a good word to describe that movie because it's yeah, where everything is so highly detailed, especially when you look at the bookends of what we're of the films that we're discussing tonight. Like, you know, Grand Budapest is so like meticulous. And even the Royal Tenenbaums is, you know, even though it still has some of that more rough neck indie style filmmaking in that film, especially like the exterior stuff, but you know, you look at Darjeeling and it's almost like he's like just he's like on a handheld almost like the whole time, just like kind of really, you know, <laughs> not, not to really go overboard. But like it's almost like documentary style <laughs> compared to like anything else that this he's done. Man's digital moment. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like, yeah, it's exactly like when Michael Mann went to, like, to the, the Viper cam or something like that. No, like he, it's such a difference. It does verge on verite at points. And I think there's this really interesting jump. Uh, going back to what I said at the beginning of the show about each of these being a seismic li- leap in style, um, we talked about in the first episode of filmography how Bottle Rocket to Rushmore suggested this massive leap in his stylistic ambition. Rushmore to Royal Tenenbaums is another really oh, substantial totally. one. Totally. Mm-hmm. Because I think Tenenbaums is really the first of the movies where you get that full blast of the Wes Anderson style and, in all of what it's known to be now. Yeah. And it's in that opening credits. That means right from the get-go, right when you have the silent, you're just like, oh, okay, this guy is now absolutely a auteur. Like he's created a total style for himself at this point. And then you jump up to you jump up from there to Darjeeling Limited, where he's doing these for him almost experimental gestures, Mm -hmm. and then you jump forward from that to Grand Budapest, which was Yeoman somehow his 
first Oscar nomination for shooting an Anderson film, which was wildly overdue when I realized that. But you also had a lot of these manipulations and Snydell, you mentioned the aspect ratios earlier, shooting in 137, 185, and 235, 1 to denote the passage of time, which is an affectation that I feel like Wes Anderson is only one of a small handful of directors who could pull that off without people taking him to the cleaners for it. Yeah, I, I think what it's interesting because I actually see. Man, like the the pairing of these films tonight is actually really brilliant because I mean, especially since like the symmetry too, because like both are almost like seven years apart from each other. Um, in a yeah, almost. Uh, and with with all three together, Darjeeling does kind of feel like a bridge between Royal Tenenbaums and uh, Grand Budapest in terms of just the you know Grand Budapest sprawling narrative and the way that it travels and the way it moves and the way that it's. It's very. I mean, I feel like with with uh, when you watch Grand Budapest, there's a lot more conscious decisions as in terms of what locations they're they're going to go to and how the set pieces are going to look. And it's definitely more uh, meticulous, as I had said before, and, and definitely more articulated. Whereas Darjeeling kind of lets him, kind of gives Wes Anderson the confidence to be able to kind of take his narratives to broader and more unexpected places. Because I mean, I, and, and I guess you could say the same thing with 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 Life Aquatic, but I never get the sense with Life Aquatic that he's actually shooting in a real out in real place. I always feel like he's on a set somewhere. Whereas with like Darjeeling, it's so rugged and it's so adventurous, you know. And it, which is funny because you know Life Aquatic is an adventure film, but it's so contained to the Belafonte. That's the name of the ship, right? The the Belafonte. The Belafonte that that you never get that i mean it, you do get the sense of adventure but it's different in darjeeling it just it just feels as if there's like that one and done island action scene yeah that still feels like such a strange little <laughs> yeah and it's also that 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 you know you'd mentioned grand budapest being so steeped in reality because you're actually talking historical events but you know you could say the same thing with darjeeling because they are actually visiting real places like this is like a reality like these are you know honest to god locations and i don't really think you see that in any other Wes Anderson movie, you know, previously, because if you think about it, like, like they never explicitly state where Royal Tenenbaums takes place though. You know, it's New York, but it's, they don't, I don't, I, 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 if I recall, I do not remember them ever mentioning New York. Just speaking anecdotally, there's a point in, as you mentioned, Matt Zoller cites as the Wes Anderson collection where they sort of discuss how it's not so much New York as it is like a cinematic New York. It's the New York that people recognize on film from movies about New York. Which, and and then Rushmore, which is actually shot in Texas, even though it doesn't even, like, I, I only found that out recently. And I was kind of blown away because I thought I always thought that movie was filmed in like Vermont or like Connecticut or something like that. And and then even like Bottle Rocket, it's just it's, it's a total weird. There's no it's kind of just any middle of America, basically, almost. So like with this, it's just you get the sense that he's actually like jumping from the screen into like reality and it's still bringing his aesthetic. And I I, I feel like it was almost like um, you could say Darjeeling was in, in terms of a production standpoint, like his transitional film you know it's it's it really does pivot into what he's going to do next and all and i also feel like in all three of these and you sort of see it start with rushmore and then really bloom in the royal tenenbaums 
you start to see his use of the close-up as a serious dramatic device and, like, the hard, unflinching close-up at that. And Margot gets a lot of them in Royal Tenenbaums. Richie obviously gets the one in his suicide sequence that's one of the most unforgettable Anderson images. But you see over the two movies that followed as well, he is willing to trust so many of his films to Yeoman capturing these faces in this very particular way. Yeah. I want to I want to go back a little bit to what Michael said about at the New York. I, I'm just thinking a little bit. And this is an unformed thought that's coming spontaneously. But yeah, I, I'm thinking a little bit about how uh, Darjeeling and uh, Grand Budapest arguably seem like when uh, Anderson became interested in things like globalization and and the idea of how uh, his insular worlds cannot only be intruded on, which I think is very explicit in Budapest, but like, you know, as much as Royal Tenenbaums is very self-aware about its, uh, eccentricities. Yeah. Um, it it is also, again, going back to that word contained and and it it is very Mm self-involved. And so it's, I think that's the weird thing about Darjeeling limited is it's, for me is that it is very much about that self-involvement, but I don't think it transcends, uh, it, it has commentary. I think it just exists as self-involvement, yeah. but either way, I think that, uh, sorry, th- these two films, uh, Darjeeling Limited and Grand Budapest represent like, again, Anderson reckoning with not just history, but like, the world as a whole. Yeah. Well, and I think Isle of Dogs only bolsters your point as the follow-up work to Grand Budapest Hotel because it's once again him reckoning with a historical legacy in a much uglier way as filtered through the Wes Anderson aesthetic. And if we're talking Wes Anderson aesthetic, that seems like as good a way as any to jump into our final segment of the episode, the music, which is as far flung between these three movies as any of our music discussions have been on this show. So we can jump in with Tenenbaums, which is kind of your archetypal Anderson soundtrack and score, right? You've got the Mark Mothers Boss sounds, again, a lot of staccato pluck strings, but juxtaposed with a lot of these post-punk sounds. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, I really like that Mark Mothersbaugh score. I honestly, this is a little bit sacrilege, but I generally don't like his scores that much, with, with a few exceptions. But I think that score, besides for kind of becoming uh, classic in a certain sense, I think a lot of people associate that score with Anderson. Um, there's something um, very lulling and hypnotizing uh, with it that kind of like aligns with the rhythms mm-hmm. of the film yeah, in, in a way that um, is almost never distracting, but when you hone in on it, it's uh, there's, there's a lot going on for, for lack of uh, getting into more specifics about instrumentation and things like that. I think it's interesting that he does have a cutaway from, um, Mother Spa. Like I, I think it's, and I think it's, I think it was actually crucial uh, because I think that <clears throat> I look at Scorsese and the way that he's used the same style of you know music over the years in terms of like just his own like soundtrack choices. You know the fact that he's used like "Give Me Shelter" by the Rolling Stones like a million times, and I got to applaud like Anderson to be able to say like, "Look, all right, I've done as much as I can 
which I, I don't even know if he has. I'm just assuming this that that at some point he's just like, you know what? I got to try something different, you know. And like, and I and, and like, it's, look at like Spielberg, who's worked with like John Williams like nonstop. And like, say what you will about like Ready Player One, but I thought like his working with Alan Silvestri was really refreshing because it actually brought about a spirit to Spielberg that, you know, hasn't been there for a while because I don't know when you work on the same with the same director for 30 something years, you're going to lose. It's not like you're going to lose touch because you're so intrinsically tied, but you're going to, it's going to get same old, same old. And like, that's why, I, I mean, I think actually being able to shift over to, you know, obviously with Darjeeling limited, it's very like Kubricky in the sense that it's more of like a, a scrapbook, uh, score as you know of like older uh, songs and and uh and, all, and older scores from actually um a lot of films that inspired Darjeeling Limited but then you look at like you know the score for Grand Budapest and if it had Mark Mothersbaugh done that it just it, it's I can't even imagine like the the aesthetic would be the same it would just be it would be so like self-aware at that point it, it, I just feel like having something different then is just so key well, and I think if we're taking these films and kind of reading them as we have been as transitional phases through Anderson's career, then if Tenenbaums is the most canonical Anderson score, then I agree. Darjeeling is not only the first of his films to not have the Mother's Boss score attached up to that point, but you're invoking like Satyajit Roy's films and... Mm-hmm. A lot. There's a lot of musical cues from that. I talked a little bit last week about how Isle of Dogs invokes music from Kurosawa films, yeah. and you're, he's wearing his influences more directly. But he's also, to your point, he's starting to really interrogate what is the Wes Anderson movie in a world where most movies are of a wildly different cut than the Wes Anderson movie. And then, yeah, you have the shift from Darjeeling and kind of this found patchwork score then into Grand Budapest, where Alexandre Desplat won an Oscar for his work on the film. And while it's one of my favorite scores of recent vintage, it's also distinctly different from yeah. anything else he's had today. Well, he does a great job in not ripping the Band-Aid off immediately. Like, the fact that, like, Darjeeling is such a departure from what he had before. I mean, you're thinking, about, like, I mean, just, oh, my God, going from, like, Life Aquatic to Darjeeling, it's such a leap. But even musically, like, he still involves the kinks, you know, and they're at crucial moments. Like this time tomorrow is one of the best soundtrack moments of, of his work. And then you also have, honestly, like he's used the Rolling Stones amazingly. Like, I mean, the, when he uses I am waiting in Rushmore, it's still one of my favorite moments in his films, but man, like the way he uses play with fire is just so tragic and heartbreaking. And these are important moments because they do, it's him knowing that like, I got to put this stuff in there. I got to throw a bone to the people that are expecting that sort of that, that side of me, because until to this point, he's used the, the kinks and he's used the, the Rolling Stones like almost like every goddamn movie. So it's like, it would make sense that you, you know, that he puts it in there. So I, him not ripping off the bandaid all at once is just, is so smart. And, and he does it without seeming like it's pandering. Cause you know, you could have, you could have easily had said like, well, what the hell are the Rolling Stones and the Kings doing in this movie? But it works. Like, I, I don't question it. It's, it's never, it's never, it doesn't seem jarring to me. And in fact, it only bolsters the film even more. It's just, it's no question. And the fact that he can do that for uh, claymation or yeah, yeah, or, yeah for uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, totally. Well. Like I wasn't expecting that at all when I, like when I saw that movie, even after seeing the, tra- I just thought it was going to be part of the trailer. I didn't know it was actually going to be in the movie either. So, you know, 
had he done that with Grand Budapest Hotel, I think that would have been a little bit insane. But well, you know. that's the things because I think when he's unable to kind of lean on these almost anachronistic music cues, because let's be honest, even though Anderson's films don't exist in a particular time and place, and they're theoretically present day, they're very much informed by the language of like fifties to seventies filmmaking. Mm-hmm. They always have been. Yeah. But I think when you see him unshackled from the obligation to have those needle drops, so to speak, it opens up a whole new interesting territory for his work. Yeah, I think I, speaking specifically of Desplat's work, who I, I believe, so did he do Fantastic Mr. Fox too, or am I misremembering No, that's that? accurate. That is accurate. Okay, so, uh, I, and you know, his work on that is, you know, kind of sprightly, and it's very much what you expect, given the subject matter, but I think the Grand Budapest soundtrack is uh, great in a way that many of his recent soundtracks haven't. And to be more specific, like, I think he sometimes has a tendency to get a little syrupy. I Mm -hmm. I think just as well, I think he can also rely on that uh, the the over like cinematic orchestration, like I'm thinking of uh, it's some recent blockbuster I'm thinking of, but either way, my point being that I think Grand Budapest, uh, speaking of uh, that distinctive identity, uh, Desplat gives it a, you know, a, a whimsy that comes through the classic instrumentation, but also an abrasion that yeah. comes through in some of those, like, really horrifying moments. Yeah. Like, uh, the ways, and, and the, I've listened to that soundtrack a lot, the ways, for instance, like, the key society leads into... Yeah. Um, you know, you know, leads into, you know, Zero's theme or mm-hmm. that type of thing. Like, it it ebbs and flows in a way that, and is lyrical, you know, for <laughs> instrumental music. It is, yeah. Um, in a way that I think a lot of sound, soundtracks uh, don't necessarily have. Well, and it's in a way that I don't think Mar- Mother's Buck could ever have done. And, and, and you know, I know that seems like a <laughs> slam, and I love, I like, I love him, you know, I think he's great. Just hating on Devo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? No, I God, I love Devo so much. But, you know, I think that it's funny when you go back to uh, Life Aquatic, it seems like he puts everything out there. You know, it's just, it's so quirky and it's so wild and it's so, it is so Devo. I mean, the fact that you even have Devo on the soundtrack and all this other stuff, I mean, it's just, it's very... And that felt like such a proper send off for him. And I don't think that he needed to come back, <laughs> not without being too dark. Uh, but I just, where was he going to fit? I mean, I guess like he could have done Fantastic Fox I mean, or Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I, I like that there's a new transition here. And I actually would welcome uh, someone to score his next movie that's totally different. You know, maybe get Johnny Jewel in there. <laughs> um, Wait, no, I really want to hear that. Right? <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty wild. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of soundtrack choices that, that, that he does, I mean, I, I, I think Tenenbaums is some of the best. You know, I think he introduced an entire generation to Elliot Smith that Gus Van Sant, you know, that might have missed Gus Van sure. Sant's Good Will Hunting. Um, I, I mean, I certainly became obsessed with Needle in the Hay and uh, after, after watching this film. Um, I, I'm trying to think of uh, some other... Uh, some great soundtrack selections from the Royal Temple. I mean, you had mentioned the Ramones. I mean, just uh, the, the way that he, yeah, he puts in the punk in this film is so weird, but I guess it works if, you know, in this subtle commentary on New York, especially when you're talking about, you know, a bunch of kids that were probably old enough to be around that. I don't know if they were around that time, but you know, it seems, uh, 
seems reasonably plausible. Yeah. That, to, that, to bring it back to like an earlier point really quick, though, I, I think that as much as it, it does make like a, a really, uh, you know, nice thematic discussion about transitions and things like that, I do kind of, and I say this without having seen Isle of Dogs yet, but I do kind of want to see Wes Anderson get a little bit weirder. I do too. Um, you know, I, I already mentioned PTA, but I just, I, I think his recent trajectory is so inspiring in yeah. part just because he's going for it in so many different directions and, uh, oh boy, directions. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, 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 I partly do want to see a Wes return to something that feels a little more destabilizing. Yeah, I agree. You know, maybe you should watch some, uh, some Lynch. And <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's that's the thing. It's like I I feel like um and you know one of one of my the co-hosts for Losers Club, Justin Gerber, he's basically said he hasn't emotionally connected with one of his films in a while because of the aesthetic has become so like over. It's not overbearing per se, but it's become so in. Uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, it just becomes so front and center and it's, and it's expected and it's almost like become like, this is a Wes Anderson movie. Whereas like it just, it, it feels less narrative sometimes and, and more just like just style over substance sometimes, which I don't think is the case, but I, I get where he's coming from uh, because I, I, I do have that hunger of like something different. Like even when I saw like Isle of Dogs, I was just like, uh, like really? Like, doing this like another we already did the stop motion like thing sure. not that long ago either like you know well and even in our conversation tonight we've been talking about we've been talking a lot about the ways in which these films kind of play with and comment on the anderson form rather than more so a lot of the ways in which they transcend it yeah which kind of speaks to that point but on that tack, we are getting into the closing thoughts part of the episode do you guys have anything you'd like to leave us on i mean i think you if you never watched any of the Anderson films and you started here with the dramas, I think it is actually not a bad place to start. I think you get to see that this is a real filmmaker <laughs> with a lot of real stories to tell. And he has a very signature heart that, you know, obviously you'd see in, in Rushmore and it, it would be, it'd be remiss to not include like life aquatic and fantastic Mr. Fox and all, but I think with these three films, you're seeing the core evolution of Wes Anderson, um, really, and, and in a way that you won't see in his other films. And I think those, obviously, those films are part and parcel, you know, intrinsic to that evolution. But these three, you know, like I was saying before, I mean, the way you pick these out, they're, it's genius. There's, a, there's such a symmetrical nature to these three films that I, I think that it is actually a really great primer. If you really want to see Anderson as is an evolved filmmaker. Um, and I, I mean, Grant, I think you, yeah, you get to see all his aesthetics basically on display. You know, I think whatever conflicted feelings I have about at least two of these films, I, I think if nothing else, this trio reaffirms how uh, fraudulent the ideas that Wes Anderson doesn't change or, yeah. or that he is a you know sedentary filmmaker is you know however you feel about his body of work i think that all of these films are so rife with contradictions on a thematic on a, on a formal on an emotional level yeah um 
and that's not to say that the rest of his work doesn't have that that same depth at all, but rather that, as you're saying again, it's the the symmetry and I guess lack thereof yeah. within these films uh, that makes it such a good argument for Anderson's like enduring legacy as a contemporary yeah. filmmaker. Like I'd, I, I'm like you know we're talking about the future. We were just talking about that. And I'd love to know what would be the fourth one to add to this, you know, in maybe seven years from now or, no, or not in seven years, I guess. Mm-hmm. And at that point, at this point, maybe four, it could even be the one that he does after the, the next one. And that would be, I'd love to know what it is. Older Wes Anderson sounds like a fascinating idea. Yeah. It, it's kind of, it, kind of cool. I, I won't get off too off topic, but I kind of love the idea that a lot of these younger filmmakers were seeing them age. And like, I, I had this feeling God, I'm going to go back to PTA again. Sorry. Yeah, that's uh, fine. I, I mean, it's in terms of Phantom Thread. Like, yeah. when I, you know, I, after getting out of Phantom Thread, um, I just, like, had this idea that, like, we're going to get, like, a dozen more films from this yeah. guy. And that's so exciting. It really is. And I think seeing, you know, a lot of these contemporary filmmakers, you know, whether they're just starting or whether they're six films in, it's really excited that, exciting that we're going to get, like, decades of them i hope they're just not all doing marvel or disney movies yeah within the next 10 years <laughs> well i don't th- i think those two names even i don't i could never in a million years see them doing that you know before we we did this podcast i was talking to my colleague alex young and he was saying god it'd be really cool to see anderson do a bond film and i agree with him that i, I think mm. if in terms of any franchise if, if if anderson did any of them i would absolutely love to see him do a bond movie and and, and to see how he could do it but at the same time I do like the idea that, and this is something David Lynch can't even do because he did Dune, is that these these filmmakers never did a franchise. They're, they've never tied to any of the, that, yeah. that, that type of thing, which and, would be kind of cool if that stayed that way. You know? And there's a reasonable chance they might be the last generation that finds its way into Hollywood without that as a doorway. Yeah. Yeah. Which is wild to think about. I mean... Okay, now I'm sad. (laughs) Yeah. Well, on that fatalistic note for the industry, wow, that's how we're going to bring filmography to its close for its first series, apparently. So I just wanted to say before we start wrapping up, I have a bunch of thanks to make. Um, special thanks to Matt Zoller sites for his book, the Wes Anderson collection, which served as so much of the spine and inspiration for this project. Thank you to Allison Shoemaker, Caroline Sita, Randall Colburn, Michael Snydell, Michael Rothman, Clint Worthington, and Blake Goble for their invaluable contributions to this series. For that matter, thanks to Wes Anderson for, you know, all of it, like these nine and a half movies and more to come. We're sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at D Suzanne Mayer. You can also find all of my stuff on Consequence of Sound. I'm reviewing movies all the time. I'm talking about Dwayne Johnson and his giant ape friend next week. <laughs> and, you know, I would worry that this is going to date this podcast, but I want that on the record forever. Um, anyway, where can the good listenership find you guys? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. Um, and you can also find me on Letterboxd, and I write things occasionally, which I tweet about, but uh, generally you can find me every week on the Film Stage Show. Uh, this week we're talking about A Quiet Place. <laughs> um, so looking forward to talking about that one. 
You can find me at, at Michael Rothman on Twitter, in which you'll see me post depressing uh, anecdotes about my life uh, and my current moods and random replacement songs, probably the same ones every once in a while. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you could find my work at uh, the Consequence of Sound um, and also at the AV Club, where I'm currently wrapping up this season of Ash vs. Evil Dead, which probably will be its last, unfortunately. But we'll see. So Now, even as we draw the first series of filmography to a close, we look ahead to the future. First of all, Consequence Podcast Network is going to be premiering a new series on April 10th called Discography. Exactly as it sounds, it's the companion series for music to the series you've just finished listening to. Discography is going to premiere with a six-part series on the work of Frank Zappa, featuring an interview with Zappa documentarian Alex Winter. So look forward to that. Filmography itself will be back in June. We are a quarterly series. And if you go to our Facebook page, Filmography and American Filmmaking Podcast, we want to hear from all of you about who you'd like to hear us cover in the future. That's still an up-and-air topic as of this publication, so we definitely want to know who you'd like to hear us break down in this kind of exhaustive detail. Again, you can leave us a review on iTunes and Podchaser. Those reviews are invaluably helpful for a young, burgeoning podcast such as this one. Otherwise, you can find Consequence of Sound itself on Twitter at Consequence and Facebook slash Consequence of Sound. Otherwise, thank you for listening. And again, please let a friend know, let friends know, in fact, if you enjoyed what you've heard here. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts at consequencesound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by Dominic Suzanne Mayer. And thank you for listening. We'll see you this summer. Consequence Podcast Network.